Are you sitting down? Well, you may want to stand up for this. In this episode of CTSI Discovery Radio, hear how moderate physical exercise may hold the key to healthy blood vessels and a healthy heart as you age. And we'll define moderate next on CTSI Discovery Radio. Good day, Southeast Wisconsin. You're listening to CTSI Discovery Radio, and I'm David Todd, your host for the next half an hour. On this program, we'll be talking about cardiovascular disease, your heart, and healthy blood vessels as you age. Plus, we'll talk with Dr. Drew Carlson from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute about how your tax dollars are being spent on research right here in our community. But first, we sat down with Elizabeth Bedwell, Vice President of Research Administration at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, one of the eight partners of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin right here in our region. Elizabeth, can you tell me how having CTSI partners has enhanced Children's Hospital of Wisconsin's ability to engage the community or tackle different health issues that children cope with daily? Sure, Children's is committed to providing the best and safest care for kids in our community. Uh, now and well into the future. So research, especially clinical and translational research, um, is needed to inform that path forward. Um, Children's has a long history of investing in clinical and translational research. Uh, we want to be investing in life-saving cures and research and technology so that we're delivering the best health outcomes for kids, really changing the standard of care for kids. We have many valuable community partners, and CTSI is there to strengthen those partnerships, create synergies um, to help us improve healthcare. Um, one of the things about CTSI that I think is really helpful in this area is the pilot program. Um, it provides seed funding um, for some of those hot, innovative ideas that our researchers have. So this is a program that helps them to test their hypotheses prior to seeking um, larger funding mechanisms. It also gets them working interdisciplinary and interinstitutional as well. Absolutely. So one of our uh, cardiothoracic surgeons, Dr. Mike Mitchell, um, was funded through this mechanism. He benefited from this pilot funding, um, working with partners um, in the area, including some engineering students. Um, and this is a really um, exciting project where he's testing a, a non-invasive way to monitor um, heart transplant rejection. So the partnerships are important, um, collecting that pilot data was important, and um, he and his um, collaborators have gone on to receive NIH funding. That's great information to hear, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Just shows how the uh, power of collaboration and partnership really can move our projects forward so much here in this community. Thank you, Elizabeth. You're welcome. Whether you're one or 100, the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin is there to help. And there are 62 centers just like ours throughout the country, addressing individual and community needs as they see them. So we've reached out to Dr. Philip Kern at the University of Kentucky to tell us just how he's doing that. Good afternoon, Dr. Kern, how are you? I'm fine. Uh, great, um, I'm calling today to talk to you about your CTSA at the Center for Clinical and Translational Science at the University of Kentucky. Um, can you tell me, sir, how you've customized your CTSA to serve your community? Well, we actually formed our Center for Clinical Translational Sciences back in about 2006, before we actually had CTSA funding. And so things have evolved over that period of time. So since then, and then with funding, of course, we've been trying to 
pull this together into a more cohesive unit and to change things according to what makes sense for our own community and our own investigators, uh, and, of course, keeping an eye on the national trends and, and, and events that are unfolding with, uh, with NIH and NCATS. So I think a couple of the things that we've done over the years, we've taken our pilot grant program and we've turned our pilot grant program into a university-wide pilot grant program that pilots, that, that, that collaborates with essentially all the other centers on campus. So for example, before the Cancer Center had a pilot grant program, the Aging Center had a pilot grant program, Diabetes had a pro, you know, everybody has their own pilot grant program. And so what we've done is we've, partnered with them so that these centers put in some money and we put in some money and and then we have uh, twice a year RFAs for pilot grants where now we've essentially united under under centralized RFAs most of the pilot grant programs on campus and we have a long list of uh, centers and other entities that that now work with us on this, and so this has a lot of advantages. First of all, it it it, it allows us to do this in a fair and uniform manner. It's easier on investigators because they can only pay attention to you know uh, RFAs that come out at certain times without getting all confused by by different different products and different promotions. So this has been one thing that we've done. Um, our educational program has done very well, uh, our KL2 and, and TL1 program. Most of our scholars, we've graduated many of our scholars now into uh, extramural funding. And can I ask you, sir, um, what, uh, you know, when you when you look to the community that you serve and the, and the needs of your community, what is the most pressing uh, health needs of the, of the Appalachia region? So, everything. Um, so, although we are the flagship university, in Kentucky, uh, we most of our effort has been looking east into Appalachia, and as you probably know, the disparities in Appalachia are pretty much among the worst in the United States. In turn, you know the the prevalence of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, everything is just astronomical there, and so. We, we, we put a lot of effort into trying to reach that community. We've done that through a variety of ways. So first of all, we have strong connections at, at hospitals and community organizations there. And we've, uh, we, we've, had, we have a, we've had a very strong community-based participatory research program out there to, keep, to have a two-way street to keep us informed with what the community wants and then to try to introduce programs to try to help the community. Uh, many of our KL2 and pilot grant programs are specifically targeted uh, to the Eastern Kentucky community. Um, recently, we had a special call for grants, and we did something a little bit different, is we actually asked for l larger grants, $100,000 grants, but the requirement was that these had to have a deep involvement with the community. And we funded several of these. Uh, one involved lung cancer screening, uh, in Eastern Kentucky, and we also have small seed grants. Uh, you know, we found that there's a lot of community organizations that they don't need $50,000, they don't need $100,000. They'd be very happy with a few thousand dollars just to get some small project off the ground. And so, and so we have a program of seed grants that we give out fairly uh, liberally to, but not, not to investigators so much as to community organizations. And 
many of these, I mean, these are not really designed to generate new NIH grants. These are really designed to uh, promote small projects that helps build trust with the community. And build relationships with your CTSA as well. Right, absolutely. Right. Well, that sounds very innovative, Dr. Kern. I'm certain that the community is much healthier because you guys are all working in collaboration. Um, and it sounds like uh, you have a, a great grasp of eastern Kentucky and the problems facing you. Okay, well, thank you very much. We'll take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll hear about the research enterprise serving Southeast Wisconsin and how your tax dollars are driving new discoveries. That's next. Biomedical research is happening every day here in Southeast Wisconsin and in communities across the country. Dr. Drew Carlson from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute talks with us about how your tax dollars are hard at work, yielding some amazing results. Good afternoon, Dr. Carlson. Thanks for joining us today. Can you do me a favor and tell us a little bit about the work you do at the NHLBI and at the NIH? I certainly can, and I'm, I'm really happy to do it because most people know NIH from the TV, but they don't know exactly what, how it works. But we get about $30 billion annually of your federal tax dollars to support research. And the bulk of the research that's done is actually not done in Bethesda at NIH, but is done across the country. About 85% of the budget goes to extramural institutions. And in fact, one of the grants goes to fund the CTSI at Wisconsin. So that money really ends up in the communities. That's right. So uh, it's, it's a massive effort. And I'm a program officer that oversees some of the grants that we uh, award. I work for one of the 27 institutes and centers that comprise the NIH, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And so our mission is really to... Uh, promote the uh, education, treatment, prevention, and research into cardiovascular disease and how to relieve its burden on the whole population and, in fact, globally. Um, cardiovascular disease has continued over the years to be the number one cause of death uh, in our population. Can you tell me, like, you know, how many people does cardiovascular disease affect? Um, is there, is there, um, are there certain populations that are more at risk? Uh, there are definitely uh, disparities across uh, the population, uh, and that disparities are both socioeconomic and also uh, uh, ethnic and uh, dif different ethnic and racial groups. So that cardiovascular disease is still a major problem in the Afro-American, uh, Hispanic, 
and uh, Native American communities. In the work of supporting research of cardiovascular disease, obviously you're uh, funding many, many different studies, many, many different ways of looking at cardiovascular disease, whether it's even bench science to translational science, what we do here. Can you tell me how the translational sciences are working with cardiovascular disease and being funded and how quickly we're finding new discoveries? So at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, uh, we have an annual budget of about $3 billion. And uh, like I said, the most of that's spent on the outside. About 85% goes to communities? Right. Obviously, we support research in really a broad range of areas from the very basic up through the translational. And, and right now, there's a major emphasis in our institute to support translational uh, research that uh, goes beyond just simply taking new discoveries and designing treatments and showing they're effective, but also research in how best to implement them through the wider community and disseminate those findings so that uh, they can be uh, rapidly incorporated into clinical practice. And that's the mission. Yeah, it can sometimes be difficult because people are ingrained in a standard way of doing things, and if it's particularly innovative or seems counterintuitive, uh, it may be difficult for physicians to accept, or there may be other barriers in terms of really uh, getting things into practical use. And the NHLBI also gets behind young investigators who are trying to uh, move these translational science discoveries forward as well. We do, and we also, for, particularly for young investigators that we support in the translational area, we encourage them to draw on the resources that are available by nearby CTSIs. And so uh, one particular kind of grant that we support is a career development award called the K-23. And I believe later today you'll talk to Dr. Widlansky. Mm -hmm. And he held one of these awards, and the research you'll talk about was in part funded by that uh, award. What it does is it allows a physician like Dr. Widlansky to have protected time to devote to research. Uh, in fact, the award requires that he spends three quarters of his time doing research. The K-23 award is a special one because it's specifically for patient-oriented research. We're very, very high on the collaborative nature of the work that we do. Um, very focused on working um, interinstitutional uh, at RCTSI and interdisciplinary so that we're using the best of all the scientific community we have, engineers, clinicians, social workers, really all looking at that same issue. And I know that's what the National Institutes of Health and the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences are really pushing forward to be effective in the development of these new um, therapeutic and drugs for our young investigators. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. This is invaluable information, and we really appreciate the support that the NIH and the NHLBI gives to Dr. Wodlanski and his research. We are very happy to have lots of investigators across the country like him doing this work. Uh, to address issues in cardiovascular disease. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time, Doctor. Have a great day. Dr. Michael Widlansky is working with a collaborative team of scientists to explore the effects of moderate exercise on the health of blood vessels. We know exercise helps your heart health, 
but what's happening at the cellular level. Dr. Wodlanski, I know that this study is um, in result of a pilot award from the CTSI, but where did the concept or the idea come from? Well, the concept actually came from a, a study that uh, started in collaboration with uh, another investigator named Scott Strath at uh, UWM. Uh, Dr. Strath, who's also a co-investigator on this award, uh, his research interests are in ways to quantify physical activity and methods to increase physical activity in older adults. Um, and the two of us uh, met um, actually through a uh, K-30 program um, uh, here at the Medical College uh, back in 2007. And that's the Research Scholars Program here at the Medical College, correct? Yes, that's correct. And we noted that my interests, which are in um, mechanisms of how blood vessels become dysfunctional over time and how that relates to the development of heart attacks and strokes and his interest in physical activity and our knowledge that physical activity is helpful uh, to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, we came together actually to formulate a project where we put together a um, randomized study of adults over the age of 50 who are otherwise healthy, may, some may have had hypertension, and we um, looked to randomize them to an intervention that he had designed um, to increase physical activity through the use of pedometer. So really very basic physical activity, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary, something very approachable by the community. No, exactly that. So for, particularly for adults over the age of 50, the primary um, type of physical activity that's engaged in is walking. Approximately 70% of the, those that are active report walking as their main level of activity. And really, it was designed to encourage in the intervention arms to increase their step count from where most of them averaged at baseline about uh, between five and 6,000 steps a day to 10,000 steps a day or over using interventions to sort of in integrate physical activity into their daily lives. And what was not known the, is this 10,000 step number has been out there for some time, but what was not really known is whether that actually impacted vascular function or blood vessel function. And so that's what the study was actually really designed to test. And we um, actually uh, we got the study, put it together, and, and uh, sent a uh, grant application into the American Heart Association, uh, which uh, uh, thankfully uh, uh, looked at it very favorably and chose to fund that study. Um, and so that study went over a period of about three years. And what we did find is that increases in physical activity to that 10,000 step goal does appear to improve blood vessel function. However, there's a bit of a caveat to it. It has to be, the activity done has to be at a, a sort of moderate intensity level, sort of a brisk walk of about three miles an hour. So this isn't, you know, strolling to the fax machine or getting, getting up to the, go to the printer. This is intentional, moderate exercise. Yeah, it's intentional for the most. We try to get them, you know, integrated into your daily lives. So there are suggestions, for example, to park the car farther away when you go to the grocery store. But yes, it appears that the, the most of the benefit that we saw in this study uh, was in those who had increased their physical activity to, you know, the the thirty days, thirty at least thirty minutes a day of moderate intensity activity as is recommended currently. And so now that you know this, now that you have seen that there's a a connection or a correlation at least. What's your next step? Well, the question is why? And that's what the CTSI study begins to look at. 
And what this study is actually designed to look at is one potential mechanism as to why that may occur. And what we're looking at is we took actually the, the, the samples, the plasma samples from patients from this study, and we looked at a group of the highest performers, and we're looking at a group of the lowest performers in that study. So the people who basically didn't do much of, change much at all. And um, what we're then looking at is from those plasma samples, we're looking at um, the expression of small microRNAs, or ribonucleic acids, in the blood. They have a, a very important regulatory uh, aspect to them. So we've really looked at how they've changed their physical activity and now you're really digging in and looking at uh, the problem at a cellular level. That's that's precisely what we're doing and the, you know it's important work to understand why certain people you know do well with exercise training. It also is going to be very important to individuals eventually who are unable to be physically active uh, at those these levels uh, and particularly in this population there's a large number of patients who have who have uh, disabilities that make them unable to complete the 30 minutes a day of moderate intensity activity. But if we can figure out how this actually works, then we may be able to develop therapies to perhaps give them some of the benefits that they can't otherwise get uh, from regular physical activity. And a much healthier cardiovascular system. Precisely. What we're really going to do is if we can see those effects, then we can uh, and see what their differences in, in microRNA expression. And once you manipulate them, then you can figure out what kind of magic bullet or drug or, or, um, or trigger uh, can be used in, in the future for people who are less physically active. Right. That's the goal. Because then you could see those microRNAs will su may suppress or alter expression of proteins from a whole slew of different pathways. And then the question is, what proteins in those pathways are the important ones for what we're looking for for physical activity and how the blood vessels change? Um, so there's a lot of steps, obviously, from this point, from, from that point forward. Well, Dr. Wodlanski, it sounds like you've got a lot of work ahead of yourself, but it also sounds like it's a fascinating work, and it sounds like you've got a great selection of collaborators and partners to help you move this work forward. This work really is a full translational collaboration between, you know, an individual whose expertise is in physical activity and at the macroscopic population level, individuals at the molecular level, and that's for their expertise, and an individual like myself who sort of lives at the interface of the two of them, and how you can leverage the knowledge bases and abilities of different investigators to answer questions that otherwise a single investigator couldn't answer. And I think that's sort of the beauty of one of the beauties of this study. We think so, too. Thank you, Dr. Wodlanski, for your time. Thank you. You can read more about Dr. Wodlanski's study by visiting ctsi.mcw.edu, keyword Wodlanski. We'll be right back after this quick break to define moderate exercise and give you some tips to get more physically active. My 
With February being American Heart Month, we thought there was no better place to go than the American Heart Association to hear how they are advocating for better patient health. Jay, as the Communications Director for the American Heart Association here in Southeast Wisconsin, you interact with the community and the public all the time. And I know that many people turn to you for advice as far as heart health and stroke health, especially going into February and American Heart Month. Tell me the guidelines as far as exercise and keeping healthy and and just the basics people should know as they're entering this month and want to be heart healthy. Well, the number one thing we tell people is 80% of heart disease and stroke can be prevented by making better choices. That means quitting smoking, exercising regularly, and then also eating a diet that's healthier. And even if you're someone who's already had a heart attack or stroke, you can help prevent another event by following these things. So that's one of the messages we really try to get out this month. And you kind of advocate that across all your platforms, whether it's at the Heart Ball or at the Heart Walk or in your literature, you're pretty consistent about um, people's uh, ability to control and to take over their um, the future of their health. Correct. We tell people you have the power to take charge of your heart health, you know, and it it can be just small steps that add up to big things. Well, give me some of those small steps. What are a few of those things that if, you, if you're not a gym person, if you don't want to go, what can your average person do to make sure that they get the right amount of exercise? And um, what should they be getting? For an adult, they should be getting 150 minutes a week. So basically, that's 30 minutes a day, five days a week. And sometimes people who are busy say, well, I don't have time for a half hour. But The good news is you get the same health benefit if you exercise in two 15-minute blocks or three 10-minute blocks as 30 minutes at a time. So as long as you're getting moderate exercise and you're getting that amount every day, and it can be just a brisk walk. It doesn't have to be, you know, getting on the treadmill or, or doing a spin class or something, you know. It can start as easy as walking. Everybody, you know, that's a free thing. Um, you can walk in your neighborhood. This time of year with the weather and everything, it might not be where you want to be so you could go to the mall. And I know that um, when we encourage children to stay active, your guidelines are a little bit more aggressive for children. Yes, the guidelines for children, they need much more exercise. They need 60 minutes every day. And that's something to watch for because um, kids don't have as much recess and as much gym class as they used to have. And so if they're not getting that during the day at school, it's important that they have that physical play the rest of the day because um, kids can start developing the precursors for heart disease at an early age. And I heard you say um, play, and it's important to make sure that they understand that it's also play and that this isn't work that they have to be doing. Exactly. You want to make it fun. And, you know, quite honestly, if you have kids of that age, if you go out and participate with them, you're getting your exercise too. Go throw the ball around with them or go for a walk with them or ride a bike or something. It's a way for your family to all get that exercise as well. And it's going to make you all healthier. Tell me how, if you're walking or if you're at the mall or if you're walking up and down stairs, how do you know that you've hit that moderate 
um, level of exercise. Um, should you break a sweat? You know, should you be able to talk? You know, um, what kind of um, what kind of clues should we be taking from our body? What we tell people is a good rule of thumb is that if you are exercising at a moderate level, you wouldn't be able to sing without being out of breath. That has nothing to say about your singing abilities, but it's just to say you would get out of breath if you tried to sing. If you could still sing, you need to pick up the pace. You're not getting moderate exercise. Jay, that's an excellent rule of thumb and excellent guides and tips for you, um, uh, actually for all of us, going into American Heart Month. Thank you so much for having us on. We debated singing for you, but Jay had a cold and no one wants to sing alone. So keep walking and keep active. One last item. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make sure to mark your calendars to join us next month. And do log on to our website, ctsi.mcw.edu, for even more information about research and your health. Until then, CTSI Discovery Radio is produced by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The show is engineered by Tom Crawford, with special thanks to Sandy Everett's and Drs. Herman Beats and Reza Shakir.